Good morning. Welcome to Grace City. My name is David Hederman. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us and being a part of our community. When you look at God's word, there are many psalms and prayers that are written that express frustration, angst, and really even anger towards God. They're crying out to God. They're, in so many of these prayers, they're expressing a longing for God to act, a longing for God to intercede. They're expressing a desire for God to show that he is good, that he is in control, that he is just, and that he is righteous. And even though so many of these prayers really are, are loaded and kind of charged in, in, in their expressions of, of even what can be described as anger towards God, I think in a strange way it's actually evidence of God's goodness that he not only puts these, these prayers in the hearts of his people, but he also allows those prayers to be included in God's word. God puts into his people this desire for fairness, this desire for justice, this de desire for goodness, for these things to happen in the world. And when they don't, we get angry, and we should get angry. We should get angry when that doesn't happen. When we, we should be upset when we see things in this world that do not align with, with a God that is good, or with a God who is sovereign and just and in control. I, I think that anger reveals a desire, a sense of longing for what is not, but what should be. Have you ever had this experience? Has it ever happened to you where you've kind of had that longing or that desire, maybe even that, that, that righteous anger? In a sense of maybe it was a family member, maybe it was a child or a classmate or a coworker. Someone wronged them, someone mistreated them, someone hurt them. And there's that thing in you that welled up and was like, no, sir, like this is, this is not right. This isn't fair. This isn't just. Or, or maybe it wasn't a close personal relationship. Maybe you've just kind of seen what's going on across our nation, not only the past few months, but over the past years and, and maybe even decades. And you just look at those that always seem to be taken advantage of by the system, whether it be the poor, the marginalized, the disempowered uh, minority people groups. You just see them fighting an uphill battle and you see it and you think this just doesn't feel right. What is is not what should be. Still, maybe another harder question uh, that I do think goes hand in hand with it. Have you ever looked inside yourself, looked into those dark parts of our heart, dark parts of our soul, and, and, and in those moments, see those parts of our life that express those sinful desires, those sinful notions where maybe you were the one who mistreated a family member. Maybe you were the one who took advantage of somebody else. Maybe you were the one who overlooked or ignored or treated with indifference those around you. Have you ever looked at those parts of your life and been angry that that's a part of you? Have you ever looked at that and said, that's not right. I don't want this to be a part of my life anymore. Have there been times where you've ever felt a sense of, of anger over the sin in your life? This anger, and, and you, maybe you've heard this language leading up to it. I, I think that anger in so many ways expresses a longing and a desire um, for what we want to see happen in our life, for what we want to see happen in the world around us. I think that anger, that longing, that desire, I think all of that is reflected in the fourth beatitude that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, for the past month, we've been looking, oh, we've been in our series, Beatitudes, looking at these opening statements to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes simply means blessing. That word simply means blessing. And, and so we're, we're seeing, or Jesus is teaching, what it looks like to be blessed, who is blessed, and, and what a blessed life looks like as part of the kingdom of God. And here in Matthew 5, 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they 
will be filled. Now, when he says this statement, he introduces the theme of righteousness into the Sermon on the Mount. If we were to do a a three-month study on the Sermon on the Mount, we would see this this topic come up again and again because here Jesus is is teaching and letting us know that one of the virtues of the kingdom of God is righteousness. And when we hunger and thirst for it, we will be filled. And so if that's the promise, right, if that's the blessing, hungry and thirst for righteousness, that we'll, we will be filled, I think we need to be really clear on what righteousness is. What is the thing that we are longing for? What is the thing that we are, are desiring? And, and so I've got a couple of definitions for you. And I think even though I say it two or three different ways, I think they all kind of go hand in hand and all, all work together. One way that you can view righteousness or understand righteousness is this. It is a right relationship that you have with the Lord and a right relationship with your fellow man. It is a right relationship with God and with our fellow man. And so with that, the biblical view of righteousness is closely, if not intricately, tied to justice. And so it's a right relationship with God and with our fellow man. You can think of the the two great commandments of Scripture, right? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those reflected in this definition. Right relationship with God. Right relationship with our fellow man. And those can be seen uh, and and, and expressed. And it's intricately tied to justice. Justice justice in our relationship with God and with our fellow man. Righteousness is most readily seen or, or, or demonstrated in the acts of God. You see God's righteousness when he acts on behalf of his people, when he acts and intercedes in and for their life. And so the theologian Wayne Grudem defines righteousness as God acting in accordance with what is right, as he is the final standard of what is right. And again, I think all those definitions go hand in hand because when we act in accordance with what is right, you know, we have a right relationship with the Lord as he is the standard of what is right. When we have a right relationship with our fellow man, we're acting in accordance with what, how God has commanded us to live, love, relate, and serve to them. And so all, I think all these definitions go hand in hand. But again, what you hear in all of them and, and what you can see in and throughout Scripture is that it, God's righteousness is on display when he is acting on behalf of his people. And he does this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, like, for instance, in the Old, on the Old Testament, God hears the cries of the Israelites and delivers them into the promised land. They were uh, enslaved to the Egyptian empire, and so they were crying out under the yoke of oppression, being victimized and being mistreated. Well, God hears their cries. He sees the unjust societal system. He acts on their behalf, and he delivers them into the promised land. And along the way, he teaches them and shows them what a right relationship with him looks like, and he writes that relationship that Israel would have with, with the nations around them. And so by leading them to the promised land, they they learn this about God. They learn how to relate to him. And then again, they're able to now establish themselves as the nation of Israel and return to their original intent of of their creation to be a blessing to all nations, revealing uh, really to the whole world that the God of the Israelites is the one true God. But it's God's righteousness acting on behalf of the Israelites. We see this, we understand and see on display God's righteous character and nature. We see the righteousness of God in the New Testament through Christ and the cross. Because on the cross, God confronts the unjust, the unrighteous elements within our own soul to deliver us from the chains of our sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Scripture says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So on the cross, Christ confronts what's in our own hearts. He confronts what's in our own souls that should not be there. What, the, what fractures the relationship with God. Those parts of our lives that are unjust, that are unfair. Those parts of our life that are perhaps filled with greed, with apathy, with lust, with uh, disdain for others or disdain for, him, for God or his word. Jesus takes all that. Okay, He takes all that sin onto himself, bears that punishment so that we might be credited with his righteousness, so that we might be credited with his right relationship with his Father. And so when we put our faith in him, when we trust in him for the work that he's done and this exchange that has happened, when we do that, we receive the kingdom of God into our life. We receive the righteousness from God. When we hunger for this, when we thirst for this, when we long for it, we can know that because of Christ and his work on the cross, we will be filled. It's a promise that we trust in, It's a grace we receive into our lives, and we know that Jesus has given us his righteousness and restored our relationship with the Lord, which then directly impacts our our relationships with our fellow man, should directly impact and help us right the relationship with those around us. Because if it doesn't, if it doesn't, if, if one doesn't impact the other, then, then that's a broken expression of righteousness. I would even say that's a stunted expression of righteousness. It's, it's not being I- expressed the way that it should. And we see a broken example of righteousness with a, a group in Scripture called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were um, part of the religious establishment, part of the, the religious um, e- elite, if you will, a- among the Jewish people that were known for their pursuit of self-righteousness. Uh, they thought that they could achieve righteousness with their own effort, um, that they could uh, force, their, force righteousness by their own dedication, um, not only to God's word, but also to the traditions that they had put on top of God's word. And so they had their checklist, we're going to achieve all this, and that's going to force God to bless us for our self-righteousness. But in this, they miss. They miss because they... Again, when they viewed it as just following these commands uh, to a T, again, following God's word is right and we were to do that. But when they added tradition on top of it and that became their soul focused, then their relationship with the Lord was viewed totally individualistically. It was just something between them and the Lord. They were only focusing on this first part of righteousness as right relationship with God, did not even consider right relationship with their fellow man. And so what happens then is righteousness did not foster a love for their fellow man. And going all the way back to the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. They were only looking at the one thinking that they're self-righteous, all the while, really, it's a broken, it's no righteousness at all. And so they, they, they ignored their relationship with, with, with their fellow man. It was a broken, stunted expression of righteousness, if you will. Scripture even tells us that um, how, in First John, it says, how can you love God whom you have not seen when you fail to love your neighbor whom you can, whom you can see? And so a lack of love for neighbor, a lack of acting on their behalf, reveals a, a, a lack of truly loving the Lord. Because again, it's a broken expression of this righteousness. And, and that's a, I don't think that's a temptation that was just limited to the Pharisees 2,000 years ago. In our individualistic, consumeristic culture in the U.S., I think we are open to this temptation for sure. 
Not so, I mean, well, I was going to say not so much the trying to earn self-righteousness. I do think that's a temptation in the deep south. We're going to try to earn this of our own accord. But I think another way that we've given a similar temptation is we take the work that Christ did on the cross and we only apply it to ourselves, not thinking that it applies to other people. I mean, for sure, we, we believe that others can, can come to know Christ and, and, and have the hope of the gospel. So we believe that there. And that's right. And that's true. And that's good. But what I mean by this is we'll, we'll view this relationship with Christ is something that is purely personal. It's, it, it's, it's purely, or really a better description, it's just private. It's just me and my relationship with the Lord, and, and it's an individualistic approach to it, and we don't consider how that faith, how what Christ has done, is to directly impact our relationships with those around us. And it's in the verses immediately preceding 2 Corinthians 5.21, where the Apostle Paul is helps us know and see how the righteousness that we have in, in our relationship with the Lord, what Christ has done, how that directly impacts, uh, sh- should directly impact the relationship that we have with others. But, it, but he says it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of a reconciliation. So there's an inward work that's happened, but now we're given a ministry. A ministry implies we're going out towards others. That, that uh, all this was from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see on this, right? Like Christ on the cross made a way for our old to be gone, for our new to come. We've been reconciled to God. Our relationship with him restored. We've been made right. We're declared righteous. But now we're also given the message and the ministry of reconciliation. We are to implore men to be reconciled to God. And as his ambassadors of God, as ambassadors of God, we are ambassadors among the broken, among the hurting. We are to carry righteousness and justice to them. Both the justice and righteousness that we see from Christ and the hope of the gospel, and just if we see brokenness in this world, going and addressing that and, 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 and happening to that. Why are you doing this? Well, because the righteousness of God restored our own hearts and lives. He mended what was broken in our hearts and lives. It's his character. It's his nature. It's his attributes. And so when we see what is broken and unjust and flawed in our society and in our communities, we want to happen to that as well because we're putting on display the righteousness of God. And it's the ministry of reconciliation that we are committed to. This is what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want it for ourselves and our relationship with the Lord. We want it for others and we want it for our communities. Because when we thirst for the righteousness of God, we long to see God right the wrongs of our hearts and of our communities. And it's, I I think we run into trouble when we, uh, again, emphasize one over the other, but the, the righteousness of God is displayed in, 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 in both equally, in our relationship to the Lord and in our relationship with those around us. And just, just to give an, an example of this, or a case study of this, if you, if you will, we see this happen with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. 
Now, you can go and read that text in your personal study this week, and I would highly encourage you to do it. It's just a phenomenal, life-changing story. Just the before and after story of the woman at the well is just incredible. But I'll just tell you the story in a quick form here. She is a Samaritan woman who's living in sin, and really she's on the margins of society. She suffers the injustice of poverty. Uh, With her being a Samaritan, that means she's persecuted not only by Rome, but also by Jewish people as well. With her living in sin within her Samaritan community, her, uh, the the men and women of her community have ostracized her even further, so much so to where she's going to a well at the heat of the day um, by herself. That was incredibly uh, unusual in this culture and in this time. That women would go as a group and in the cool of the day or in the cool of the night. She's going there by herself in the middle of the day. She is ostracized. She's been excluded. And so she has all of that Uh, all of those injustices in and on her life. Some of the things that she committed and some of the things that just happened to her. But yet all of those injustices are addressed, I would even say attacked, when Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, goes and has a conversation with her. Because when he does, he gives her dignity. He gives her respect. He breaks down the racial tensions of the Jewish and Samaritan prejudice. And in that whole conversation, he's, he's, he's writing and taking on all these injustices. But at its core, in the middle of all of it, is this incredible, divine, eternal, life-giving, hope-giving truth that Jesus Christ is the living water. He alone can quench the thirst of our soul. And that's what he's teaching this woman. That's what he's offering to this woman. And she finds that hope in him. And so what you see, when we thirst for the righteousness of God, we long to see God right the wrongs of our hearts and of our communities. And that that happens in and through that text. And just the the life change and and the, the righteousness that happens in and through that conversation. And so uh, again, it's just, it's, it's a twofold aspect of our faith. Our faith is intensely personal, but it cannot be private because when we are longing for the righteousness of God, not only do we have this personal encounter with Christ where our sins are given to him and his righteousness is given to us in return, but now that, that mending has happened in our heart and our soul, we've been justified before God, we're being grown into his image. Well, now we display that. We put that on display with us, right? So now our faith has an external component to it in the way that we love, the way that we live, the way that we relate to those around us, the way that we see areas of brokenness and sinfulness and injustice in our society and want to happen to them. Because when we do, it, it, it puts on display the hope of the righteousness of the kingdom of God. So yes, when you see abuse, when you see brokenness, When we see sinfulness, whether it's on a grand systemic scale or someone mistreated your kids or someone wronged your roommate, when we see that and something in us is stirred, we are seeing what is but longing for what should be. We are hungering and thirsting for righteousness in that moment. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice to happen within the hearts of people and within our societies as a whole. Because when that happens, these are expressions of the kingdom of God. Righteousness and justice happens in the hearts of men and women whenever they trust in Christ for their forgiveness of sin and for their salvation. And then, yes, they too are given the ministry and the message of reconciliation. And you just see the kingdom of God advancing in and through 
the brokenness of our world, redeeming and mending uh, broken men and women along the way, and showing and putting on display the righteousness and justice of God. And it's a way that you see the kingdom of God continue to flourish. And so this should, this should lead us to two actions, to two actions. One, to know the righteousness of Christ that he wants to credit to you. If you don't know this, if you haven't heard this truth before, then, then hear the words of Paul that we read in Scripture, that we implore you, be reconciled to God. Let Christ have your whole life. Let him confront the sin, the darkness in your life that you know is there, that sometimes even makes you angry, that you don't want it to be there anymore. Let Christ have his way with your life. And the Holy Spirit will help convict you of that sin, help you see it, help you come out of it, and lead you into the life that God has created and called you to live. In and through that, that's a way that you discover life by the grace of Christ, and it's a way where you're filled with his righteousness. And then the second action would be then to embrace our role as ambassadors of God that we've been entrusted with the ministry and message of reconciliation. We are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice in our communities and in the lives of those around us. Why? Because in so doing, we are sowing seeds of the kingdom of God. That's a way where what we desire and long for in our communities is what God desires and longs for in our communities. And along the way, we put the hope, the renewal, the justice, and the righteousness of God on full display, longing to see it take root in the hearts of men and women. We show our love for God with our love for our neighbor, and as we do, we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness to be evident among his people. And that is not an empty hope. It is not a shaky belief. It is a hope that we have full confidence in. It's a hope that can lead to a bold way of living because we are banking on this truth that Christ has given us. That when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for this hope. We thank you for this promise. We thank you for this incredible uh, redemptive work that you've done in our hearts and lives when we place our faith in, in, in you and in the, the work that was done for us on the cross. God, a place where our sins are given to you and righteousness credited to us in return. We know our relationship with you has been made right, has been restored when we place that hope and that faith and that trust in you. Lord God, help that to take root in our heart and in our life. God, help it to spur our sense of our, spur our action, not our sense of it, help it to spur our action on behalf of those around us. God, help us to seek out occasions to put your righteousness, your justice on display, and let all of this be evidence of the hope that we have in your kingdom. God, I pray that we'd be people of humility as we commit ourselves to this work. God, I pray that we would be people uh, committed um, towards your righteousness and towards the holiness that you have given us, uh, that you have um, called us to in your word. And God, I pray that as we uh, live our lives for you, as we pursue holiness, as we pursue righteous living, Lord God, that that would lead us to act in a way that mirrors your righteousness in this fallen and broken world. God, we love you. We thank you for this text. We thank you for this word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.